these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left one here, uh, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And Father, we pray as we look at one of the most sobering sections of your word, we pray that you would help us to have humble hearts and help us to receive uh, with meekness your word. To, to believe you, Lord Jesus, that when you say these things, that these things have come to pass and therefore also will come to pass. And that we would, we would heed your exhortations to not be afraid, to not be weighed down with other things in our life that would keep us from trusting in you. And that, Lord, we would be able to have hope when it feels like the world's falling apart. Please, Lord, we pray you'd build this in us today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, Amen. So, so the section, this chapter starts with Jesus being near the temple. Right? He's in Jerusalem. We've seen this. Luke has been heading this direction since chapter 9. And, and he's, in the, he's in near the temple. And, and, and he's, he's watching there as people are going up to this place. It would have been what's called the court of the women. There would have been these boxes with these kind of huge trumpet openings where people would throw their money in. They would make their offerings. And he's watching as people go up, and people made a big sort of pomp about this. They made a big deal about this, especially wealthy people. They come in and kind of pour in their gold coins into this big trumpet-shaped box. And he sees this woman, this poor widow woman, and she puts in a couple P, not much. But he knows that when she puts that in, that's all she has to live on. Don't forget, widows couldn't go out and just go work at the local Tesco and earn a living. They, they were stuck on the, the charity of others. They had no way to provide for themselves. They were incredibly vulnerable. But she's wanting to worship. She's wanting to invest in the place where God dwells. And so she does. And here's what's interesting. When she does this, or when Jesus sees this, and he says, man, truly I tell you, she's given out of her poverty all that she has to live on. It's almost like you get the sense that the disciples are all, oh, that's nice, old lady. Okay, but look at the temple. I mean, these stones are huge. In fact, one of the things about the temple was some of the stones were so big, people wonder how they got them moved into place. I mean, we're talking stones that would be like three meters by three meters by ten meters moved into place. Not only that, what's mentioned here about the offerings that they saw that were adorning the temple, some of these offerings were extravagant. In fact, the Herod, who was kind of running the area at this time, was, was a half-Jew kind of running this area of Palestine at the time. Uh, Herod invested loads and loads and loads of money to make sure this thing was decked out. Some even say that this was paneled, that the, these stones were paneled with sheets of gold, that when the sun would shine on it, it was so bright you couldn't even see it. There were some who, who offered, I think Herod himself offered, uh, these gold-covered, this gold-covered grapevine. I mean, grapes the size of basketballs that were covered in gold that were all over adorning this thing. This was like one of the seven wonders of the world. And so when Jesus says, no, look at this woman who gave her whole livelihood, they're like, yeah, that's great, whatever. But look at the temple itself. This thing is gorgeous. And so Jesus shocks them by saying, this thing that you're so in awe of is going to be torn completely down. Now, now remember, in Luke's gospel so far, that Jesus, as we see in all the Gospels, is showing himself 
to the nation of Israel that he is indeed their predicted Messiah. That is, he's God's chosen king. He proves that by what he says. He proves that by what he does. He's making that emphatically known to them. And these disciples, specifically the 12 plus the, the others that were following around, these disciples who were praising him, we saw a couple weeks ago, they, they believed he was God's Messiah, God's chosen king. And they know when God's king comes, he, when the chosen king comes, he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so they're probably going, yeah, Lord, that's nice. You're, you'll take care of widows. But look at the temple. Look at the place where God's going to dwell. This is where your kingdom's going to come, isn't it? This is it. It's going to look like this. Huge, extravagant, attractive. One of the seven wonders of the world. And Jesus says, no, it's all going to be thrown. What you see is all going to be thrown down. And then he gets into what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's known as that because according to parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is actually going to teach the bulk of this when he's sitting on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. This is when they're going to ask him, hey, what did you mean by this? Now, now what he's going to talk about is, and, and really in, in chapter 21, it's the third time in Luke's gospel where Jesus has predicted, has told, foretold the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It's the third time. You can see it in chapter 13, you can see it in chapter 19, and now in full detail, uh, detail in chapter 21. But the thing here with it in chapter 21 is he is predicting the, the destruction of Jerusalem. We'll see that. There's no doubt about that. But he's doing it in such a way that it seems to point forward, it seems to, to be used as a type of the destruction when God judges at the end. And so it's one of these sections where people go, well, it's really confusing, it's hard to understand. And, and there's some truth to that. But, but the truth is, there's a lesson here, or actually I think several lessons here for us to understand. And it's not just about, listen, us being afraid of God's judgment. In fact, when we see the exhortations that Jesus brings out of this, he's not wanting his disciples to be afraid. He's wanting them to have a hopeful endurance. That's why he's sharing these things. So what I want to do, if we have, hopefully if we have time, is I, I really want to look at uh, four truths that help us to have hope at the end of the world. And hopefully this feels applicable because, let's be honest, we all were thinking it was the end of the world pretty soon, weren't we, over the last couple of years? We've all been wondering, is this it? And so what we're going to see is, what does Jesus say about these things, and how can we have hope in the midst of these things? So pick it up in verse 7. And so they asked Jesus, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, they would have thought when he, he's going to talk about the sign, they were expecting the sign of when there'd be some sort of judgment. So they're thinking that way. So keep that in mind. And so here's what Jesus says, verse 8. And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. The other gospels say the end is not yet. Now, here's the thing that Jesus wants to do. In his priority in talking about judgment, the first thing he wants us to see is, listen, 
You need to be aware that this whole idea about that final judgment, the idea that the time might be at hand, uh, the, the, the idea that people are saying Jesus, is, the Messiah, has come back here again, this is great fodder for those who want to deceive you. That it, it actually is a platform for people who want to deceive us. And so he says, listen, you need to make sure that you're, you're recognizing these kinds of calamities, they attract end times deceivers. Now, this is the thing that we've seen even with these COVID crises. There's been so much stuff out there, man. I'll tell you what, this is when I really hate the internet. <laughs> because there's been so much junk out there. I remember the first maybe six months or so, uh, I was spending so much time, so much time answering people's questions that Ben and I decided we should do a a, a, a podcast and kind of just be able to answer these questions all at once because it's taking so much time every week. You can still find that on our, on our SoundCloud if you want to listen to stuff. It still applies, I think. But, but the point is, is that there, there's, there, this is every time there's a crisis, a crisis of any kind, whether it's local or global, is an opportunity for people to gain power. And Jesus is saying even more so as we get closer to his return. And it will be done by those who are religious. Those who want to say, God's judgment is coming. Those who want to say, um, I am the Messiah. And we've seen dozens of false messiahs throughout the years. So, so Jesus wants us to be aware of this. But notice what he says in verse 10. He says, then he said to them, nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdoms. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and signs from heaven. Now, the other Gospels, he kind of puts these things together, what we've just read in chapters, or verses 7 to 7 and 8, and then what, what we hear in, in, read here in verses 10 and 11. He kind of puts these together. And, and Jesus, when he puts these together, he identifies them like this. He calls them birth pains. Matthew chapter 24, 8 says, Jesus says, all these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, I've personally never given birth to a child. I know it's a shock, but it's true. Never given birth to a child, but having five children, I've seen children born. And it is both beautiful and absolutely terrifying. I mean, you're freaking out when you're seeing that thing come out of a woman. You're just like, how did that happen? It's a huge deal. And it is radically, at least I suspect, it's radically painful for the woman. But long before she's going to give birth, her body is preparing for that. She starts having these contractions, her uterus contracts, and the muscles that would eventually push out that baby begin to contract. And, and they, they get more intense and more frequent the closer she gets to actually giving birth. But they're not the sign that she's giving birth right then. Do you understand? And this is really important because... When we talk about these things, it's easy for us to go, oh, look, here's the sign. Oh, look, here's the sign. It must be the end. But Jesus says, listen, you need to make sure you get this. Don't miss this. The whole point is the end is not yet. That's the whole point. So when we get so wrapped up and confused and fearful about this, we're doing it for the wrong reason. Yet, let's be honest, okay? These calamities are real calamities. He's not talking here, listen, he's not talking here about just some sort of metaphor for something. When he, when he talks about famines, he's talking about real famine. Interesting, we produce more food in the world than we ever have before. Plenty of food to feed everybody, but there's been more famines now in the last hundred years than ever before. 
pestilences. You could probably, that, that would have to do with diseases. It could have to do with all, uh, plagues. In, in one sense, you might say that, that, that COVID would fit underneath that remit. These are real things. These are real crises, earthquakes, wars. When he says nations against nations, it's, that's ethnic conflict. Ethnos is the word for nations. Uh, uh, kingdom against kingdom, that's political conflicts. We see this happening all the time. It has happened, it is happening, and it will happen until Jesus comes back. And it's very heavy difficult stuff, and Jesus is not making light of it. He's wanting his disciples to go, listen, yes, my kingdom is coming, but you need to understand something. All this stuff is going to happen way before I return. Now, at this point, remember, they're, they're not exactly sure what he's talking about. But I want to draw your attention to, to, to two exhortations. One in verse 8 where he says, see that you're not led astray. We just talked about that. But the other one is this. Notice what he says in verse 9. Do not be terrified. I want you to think about this for a second. Because Jesus is asking them, listen, he's, at, he's telling them, he's, he's exhorting them, listen, I know these things are terrifying, but I don't want you to be terrified. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I don't know about you, but if, I, well, I grew up in California, so we actually weren't that afraid of earthquakes because they happen all the time. We just kind of be like, woo, pavement surfing. It wasn't that big a deal. But I know people who didn't grow up in California, and there's an earthquake, and they are freaking out. They're jumping under a desk. They're going to the doorway. Oh, God, please help me. Because it can be terrifying if you haven't experienced them before. Anybody who's gone through any kind of war will tell you how hellish it is. So why would Jesus say, when you see these things happening, don't be terrified. This is why, listen, the disciples would have heard these things and thought, that sounds like the judgment of God. And there's nothing, listen, more terrifying than the judgment of God. And so when Jesus says, listen, don't be terrified, he's, he's saying, not because he's flipping about the difficulty that people would go through in this thing, he's saying because the most terrifying and destructive thing on this earth is not earthquakes or pestilences or war. It's sin. It's the fact that we choose to replace God or ignore God or live as if he doesn't exist. That's sin. It takes many forms, many shapes. Sometimes it's religious sin. Sometimes it's irreligious sin. But it's anytime we live as if God isn't God. And the reason Jesus is saying, don't be terrified, listen, is not because it isn't a serious thing to be judged by God. It's a very serious thing. But because he is telling his disciples who believe that he is the Messiah, he's hinting them about what he's about to do in Jerusalem for them to deal with their sin. Listen to this in John's Gospel, John chapter 3. You guys probably know these verses might be really familiar to you if you've been around church for a while. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, son, of the only son of God. So Jesus says he, he comes not to condemn, not to judge, but to save, that we wouldn't perish. 
So the thing that should terrify us the most, standing before a holy God, the thing that should terrify us the most because we have, each of us, pushed God away and worshipped the God of our own imaginations, that should terrify us way more than earthquakes or wars or pestilences or anything else. Jesus said, you don't have to be terrified. You know why? Because the most important thing has already been dealt with. And you know why else? Because all these calamities, they're temporary. And this is why it's so hard for us when life gets difficult. And please don't think I'm making light of how difficult life can be. But when life gets difficult for us, the reason it is so hard for us to cope is because we almost automatically want to think this is all there is. But it's not all there is, is it? I'm 52 years old. I know I don't look it, but I am 52 years old. I'm 52 years old. And sometimes I, I think, man, I... I really am looking forward to having grandchildren. It's a long ways away. Only one of my kids is married, and she's at university, so it's a long ways away. But I'm looking forward to having grandchildren. So sometimes if, you know, I think, man, I, I really don't, don't want to die until I see my grandchildren. You know, I used to think this way uh, about getting married when I was in my 20s, early 20s. You know, I, I don't want Jesus to come back, or I don't want to die until I get to get married. Or then it was when I was in ministry doing youth work, which I loved. And then I thought, you know, I'd like to plant a church today. I hope I don't die before I get it. And it's funny because we do this. We think my life is going to be about what I can accomplish. My life's going to be the value of my life is, is whatever good experience I can have between the time I'm born and the time I die. But guess what? Everything that we experience in this life, everything that is good is a shadow of the best that we'll have when we see him face to face. And every single, single hellish thing that we experience as believers in Jesus is the closest thing to hell we ever get to. See, calamities are a temporary reality. And Jesus wants, listen, Jesus wants to make sure his disciples are managing their expectations. He's saying things are going to get rough sometimes. But don't fear. Don't get caught out by that. And don't fear. Isn't this why we get pulled into dodgy stuff is because we're afraid? I mean, let's be honest. I don't want to show of hands, but have you ever just thought, man, something really bad happens? I'm talking to you guys who are already Jesus followers. If you're not a Jesus follower, this may not apply to you, so forgive me. But if you're already a Jesus follower, you ever been in a place where, you know, you, you know you should follow Jesus, you should do what he wants you to do, but things get hard. Something happens that really disappoints you. Think, God, where's that? And what do you do? You dive into some sort of sin. Because you kind of feel justified in this. Have you noticed that? You know what that is? That's us being deceived. It's us not expecting tough stuff to happen. When Jesus is really clear, it will. Now I'm going way too slow. I've got to crack on. Verse 12. Calamity is a temporary reality. That's one truth that we should hope in. That we don't have to suffer forever. We only suffer temporarily because of what Jesus has done. Here's the second thing. Persecutions are a unique opportunity. Because verse 12, he goes from all these natural disasters and these horrible wars and calamities. He says, but before all this, he says, verse 12, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake, and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, Jesus says really clearly, okay, before all this stuff goes down, you're going to be persecuted. 
Now, there's a, a, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment on this. He's talking to his disciples. So he's saying, before Jerusalem even falls, before this whole temple gets turned one stone upon another, you're going to go through some of this. So he is preparing them for that. But this obviously applies to us, doesn't it? The scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it's verse 12, it says that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All those. Even if you're not doing a very good job of living godly, if you want to live for, for God, if you want to follow Jesus, guess what's going to happen? You're going to experience some sort of persecution, marginalization, suffering, because you want to follow Jesus. Now that's foreign to us, isn't it? Because most of us here haven't experienced anything too radical. We've maybe been made fun of. I, I, I've never ever been my, had my physical life or even, uh, I've never been phys- threatened with physical harm for my faith, ever. Now maybe it's because I'm a bigger dude, I don't know, but I've never been threatened with that. I've been made fun of. I, I, I've, been, I've been told, look, if you, if you are too vocal about your faith, no one's going to want to be your friend. But I've never actually felt this. But at the same time, at the same time, listen, this is a reality. And so Jesus says, listen, here's what you're going to experience. You're going to experience persecution, but it's a unique opportunity to draw attention to Jesus. Isn't that what he says right there in verse, uh, in verse 13, right? He says, this is, will be your opportunity to bear witness. He says in verse 12, for my namesake. Listen to this. Remember, the, book, uh, uh, the Gospel of Luke is a volume one of a two-volume set, Luke and Acts. And listen to how, what Luke writes in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, listen. He says that the disciples left the presence of the religious council and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the name of Jesus. So these disciples were beaten for sharing Jesus by the religious leaders and they rejoiced over it. Lord, thank you that we have this privilege of suffering in your name. But it's more than that. Look at verse 14. He says, Jesus says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate uh, beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Basically what Jesus is saying, listen, uh, persecutions give you a chance to answer the cynics in an undeniable way. How does this work? So, so when you try to share your faith with people, often what we do, and this is not a, a bad technique, but often what we do in this culture is we try to share our faith uh, in, in the kind of the marketplace of ideas. People have their idea about what they think God is like. They have their idea about if there is a God or what is right or what is wrong. They have their ideas about morality. And so we kind of say, well, what's your, what do you believe? Well, here, well, I believe this. And we kind of compare notes, okay? This is kind of what we tend to do. And the thing is, is that in doing that, that takes a certain amount of courage, doesn't it? We do need the power of the Holy Spirit to even do that. Now, what Jesus is saying here is not saying don't know truth or don't be uh, uh, equipped to share scripture or uh, no apologetics that's given a defense for the Christian faith. He's not saying avoid that kind of preparation or study. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that the conversations will sometimes be more intense than that. They will be you being arrested by political forces who think you're a threat to what they're trying to accomplish. You you could be arrested and abused by religious forces who think you are teaching something that's not 
true. And you really can't fully prepare for that. Except to say, Lord, I want to trust that your Holy Spirit will give me what I need at that time. And here's the thing. When you're in that place, when your job or your livelihood or your relationships or your physical well-being is threatened if you make a stand and then you make a stand. You know what they cannot deny? That you actually believe what you say. You see, this is what we need right now more than anything. We don't need persecution. Let me just be really, really clear. We're not called to court persecution to pursue it. But let me be really, really clear. One of the things that the church has, the biggest problem for the church in the West, for Jesus followers in the West, and if you're not a Jesus follower and you're just kind of checking this stuff out, you probably tell me this is partially true, right? The biggest problem that we have is a credibility problem. Do we really believe in this Jesus? Do we really believe he's worthy to be followed and trusted? I mean, folks, let's be honest. We tend in the West to try to make church as comfortable and fun for you as we possibly can. It's not that hard. But Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, you need to be prepared. If you're going to fall after me, you're going to suffer persecution. But I want you to have hope because it's going to give you a great opportunity, a unique opportunity to be able to answer the cynics undeniably. In fact, listen, again, the book of Acts, this is in Acts chapter 6. It says, many rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stephen was one of the first Jesus followers. But it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was, again, being persecuted by the religious authorities. They were saying, knock it off, stop preaching Jesus. He was doing miracles. God was using him to do miracles. And then he'd preach Jesus. He was a faithful deacon at the, in the church in Jerusalem. That means he would, he would just do things like distribute food to the poor and that kind of thing. And then what happens is when they threaten him, he, he refuses to stop. They can't even resist it. And he, go, he says, let me answer. And you can read chapter 7, the longest chapter in the book of Acts. And it's Stephen preaching this mega sermon to people who want to kill him for ever bringing Jesus up. In fact, what they do is they do kill him. And as they throw stones at him, he's a first Christian martyr. As they kill him, he looks up to heaven and he says, Father, don't hold the sin against them. He prays for the forgiveness, just like Jesus did on the cross. You know what that is? That is undeniable witness. Well, they can still say, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, but they cannot deny that Stephen believed it. So much he's willing to die for it. This is the difference. Listen, here's the difference between religion and really being a Jesus follower. Religion says, I have the truth, and if you don't believe me, you're in for it. I'll persecute you. Being a Jesus follower means, hey, I have the truth, and if you don't believe me, you can kill me. You can abuse me if you need to. You can do whatever you think it needs to do to prove that what I'm saying is, is actually accurate, that I really believe this. Now, this is where it gets really tough because he, Jesus says, and again, he said something like this earlier in Luke's gospel, but look at verse 16. He says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of them, some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair 
of your head will perish. I'm not sure if that's true. But <laughs> it's a joke. Come on. I'm bald. It's a joke. <laughs> but, you're in, but by your endurance, he says, you will gain your lives. Notice that he says, some of you will be put to death, but then he makes this quirk about not a hair of your head will perish. He's obviously talking about eternally. It's interesting because earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus had said this. He says, if anyone, this is Luke chapter 14. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Doesn't that sound so far away from our own lives as Jesus followers, if we're honest? Listen, I'm not sharing any of this to condemn anybody. I really hope that you see the heart of Christ in this, that Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, don't be wowed by how impressive the religious structure is. Because I didn't come to build religious structures, Jesus is saying. I came to save souls. And I'm calling you to be a part of that work. To bring people to to know me. To bring people to a place where they have a saving knowledge of who God is. They actually know their sins are forgiven. They actually know that they have a, a, a resurrection waiting for them. They actually know why they exist. It's to know God and to enjoy him forever. And they're able to do that because of what Jesus has done. Don't forget as well, guys, he's in Jerusalem. He's saying these things, or he's on the Mount of Olives, but he's, he's hanging out in Jerusalem. He's saying these things. And as he's saying these things, he knows in his mind what he's about to experience. Jesus knows that what he's calling his disciples to do is something that he himself is going to have to do. We're going to see this as we get into chapter 22. We're going to take three weeks to go through chapter 22 because there's so much in there about how Christ suffered and what we're to learn about Christ's suffering. What it provides for us both to guarantee us a place with God forever but also as an example. I gotta go faster. Verse 20. We can have hope because calamities are a temporary reality. We can have hope because persecutions are a unique opportunity. And we can have hope because judgments fulfill what is written. Now, in verse 20 is when Jesus gets very specific about the judgment to come to Jerusalem again. He says in verse 20 But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let, not, and let those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into the, all the details or give you tons of verses, but all you got to do is read the Old Testament and see how many times God tells his people, if you do this, then comes judgment. If you trust me, then comes blessing. If you deny me or walk away from me, then comes judgment. Over and over again. Now remember what, what, how this whole conversation started. Jesus looks at this widow 
one of the most vulnerable people of society who's giving all that she has because she thinks this is how I worship. And you remember what he said? James talked about this last week, if you were here. James talked about how the Pharisees were those. You can, you can read it. Listen, I'll read it to you right now in chapter 19, uh, verse uh, 46. He says, Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces. These are the religious leaders. And the best seats in the synagogues and the places, the places of honors at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. It's not an accent that he just talks about. Beware of these who devour widows' houses, who manipulate people. And this woman who's just in the simple faith she has is saying, God, I have nowhere else to turn but to you, so all that I have is yours. Can you see how Jesus is calling us to the same thing? In fact, what's interesting here, in, in, in verse 22, when he talks about the days of vengeance, he had said earlier in chapter 19, he wept over Jerusalem. He was weeping. He was broken that, 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 that Israel as a nation had by and large rejected him. They had not recognized their Messiah. He wept for it. In the same, in the same breath that he knew that he, he warned them of their destruction, he also wept over that destruction because he didn't want that for them. But this is a demonstration of God's justice. Now, this is a, a thing that's really important because we live in a, in a, in a, in a time where For a lot of good reasons, people are desiring to see justice done now. We want to see racial justice. We want to see economic justice. We, we long for this. We want to see political justice. The, the longing for that is, is natural and even commendable. There's something about us as being those who bear the image of God that should long for justice. We want justice. But here's the, the other side of the sword. We want justice for things that we don't like. We don't want justice for things that we do wrong. We're all about justice when it has to do with, or we're all about dealing with injustices all around the world as long as they don't really get too close to home. Maybe we'll make sacrifices so that we can see those injustices righted in some way, but, well, not too many. None of us actually walk or do justly. And this is a sobering thing because Jesus talks about here, when it comes to Jerusalem, that there's a time when God will demonstrate his justice. He will bring justice whether we've been pursuing it or not. That should both scare us and give us great hope. It should scare us if we don't actually know the forgiveness that's brought to us in Jesus. But it should give us great hope to know that all the justice we're seeking will only and ultimately be brought in by who God is. But then he says this, look at verse 23. It says, alas for women, uh, uh, alas for women who are pregnant and those who, who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled under the foot 
by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now here's what's interesting. Even when Jesus is talking about the most sober judgments on the earth, the most, specifically the most sobering destruction of Jerusalem, he still says this is a temporary thing. That, that, that his, the end is not just destruction. There's a hopeful thing here. Now, this idea of the end of the Gentiles, again, man, I wish I had more time to get into this, but I encourage you to read Romans chapter 11, the book of Romans chapter 11. Because in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about, he's answering the question, okay, if Jesus was the king of the Jews, the king of the, the Messiah of the Jews, how come so few Jews believe and so many Gentiles believe? What's happened to Israel? And in, in chapter 11, he's kind of answering that question, that God has a plan to regraft in Israel. Now, there's different views on how that might happen, but that's the, the bottom line, okay? So in a very real sense, listen, God is bringing this judgment, fulfilling what is written as a preparation to show more mercy. And we experience this on a personal level, don't we, when God chastens us. When our kids were small and they do something, they were doing something wrong, we said, don't do that, knock it off. And they, they, they just ignore us and do something wrong and they hurt themselves. We say, that's a God spanking right there. <laughs> God took care of it. Because we told you it's not a good thing to do and you kept doing it and then you, you got hurt. This is what happens. In a sense, it's a mini judgment. In a sense, it's, in, in a sense, it's this, this, this way that we, it's, it's what the scripture calls the rebukes of life. When we experience the rebukes of life, you know what we're experiencing? We're experiencing God saying, listen, I did this out of mercy. Sometimes we think mercy means not bringing punishment. Sometimes punishment is the greatest mercy there can be. This is why the Bible talks about things like church discipline. How many of you guys have ever heard a sermon at your church about church discipline? Not, come on, you guys who've been at servants for, you have. Some of you have, yeah, a few. But very few of you have. Do you even know what I mean by church discipline? Okay, good. So we're not even going to get into that today. Basically, it's the, the reality that we should, as God's people, be helping each other grow. And if someone wants to say they belong to Jesus, but doesn't want to walk with Jesus, there's a need for us to love them, warn them, stick with them. But eventually say, listen, if you're not going to walk with Jesus, if you're not going to walk in repentance, you need to be dis disfellowshipped. Anybody ever been in a church where someone was disfellowshipped because they refused to repent? couple people. But listen, that's a mercy. You see, what Jesus is talking about here is the reality that judgment fulfills what's written. We can know we can trust God because he does what he says, even when it's tough. In fact, if you uh, drop down to verse 29. In verse 29, he says, he tells this parable. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they have come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all, these have take, all, all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. Listen, but Jesus says, my words will not pass away. In other words, Jesus says, is giving his word here and saying, you can put all your trust in what I'm saying. You can know that I am who I say I am based on if my word comes to pass. Now, there's a big debate about what, what's meant by this generation. Some think it means only the generation that he was speaking to there. 
uh, that experience the destruction of Jerusalem. Others think it's the generation uh, that is at the very end of time. Others would say that the word generation there can mean a, a specific group of people. Like when Jesus says, a wicked and evil generation seeks a sign, you know? And so the generation there is actually a, a, an idea that there'll be, uh, there'll be those who continue to actively rebel against Jesus, maybe specifically Israelites, who are uh, actively rebel against Jesus until he comes back. could mean that. But the point is this, okay? Jesus gives his word and says, you can trust what I say as truth. That's what he says. And that even includes judgments. Now, we've gone too long, so I'm going to save the last point for next week. But here's what I want to close with. There's so much that we could talk about in chapter 21 about this idea of the end time. Jesus coming back, judgment coming to the earth. And it's, it, there's a lot of confusion, and there's a lot of, of uh, different opinions, to be fair. There's a lot of valid uh, views about the end of time, about the Lord's return, okay? And rather than take the time to do this, I used to be really big into this stuff. Uh, I've taught the, the Old Testament book of Daniel twice, verse by verse, all the way through, which has a lot to do with the end of days. I've taught the book of Revelation, the last scary book at the back of the of the scripture, I've taught that three times, verse by verse. I'm not afraid of these things. But here's what I've learned after 30 plus years of ministry. It's really hard to know the details. But what's not hard is to know why Jesus tells them beforehand. But if you're interested in the details and what the different views are, see this little red book, How, the, How Will the World End? It's a good little book. It talks about all, a bunch of different views, all the main views that people believe, Christians believe, about the end of the world and the return of Jesus. There's about 10 copies there. You can take them. Uh, please only take it if you're going to read it. If you got a couple quid or four quid to stick in the box for it, that's great. If you don't, don't worry about it. But only take it if you're going to read it. It's not very big. I read it this week in about an hour and a half, 90 minutes. But I really encourage you, if you're interested in this stuff, to read it. But the last thing I want to close with is this is that Jesus is telling his disciples this, not so they'll fear, not so they'll panic, not so they'll go hide in some bunker somewhere. He's telling them these things so that they have hope. And when they're suffering like everybody else is suffering, people will look at them and say, why is it that you have hope? And they can say, the reason I have hope is Jesus. So how about us? Two years of pandemic, the concerns we all have about economic instabilities, and you students wondering, am I ever going to have a job? <laughs> Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Jesus of the scriptures? Do you know the one who told us this is what we could expect? The one who's promised that he'll return? The one who died on the cross to pay for the worst terror we could face, the judgment of God, so that we could be forgiven, we could be adopted. As Alan mentioned earlier, we can pray to our God, our Father. Do you know him? Father, I pray that you would not allow anyone to leave here today without coming to know you. Please have mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, and bring us to a place where we believe that our faith is in you, Lord, and what you've done for us.
And I pray as we continue to look at what your word says about who you are and what you've done, that Lord, you would build our faith, that we would see even if the world is going to fall apart, your word will stand true. Please, Lord, we pray you teach us to have this confidence. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks for being patient.